and we are live good evening good day everybody hope you are doing well and welcome to the third episode of ask abhijit today is the chingis khan special the mongolia special uh, so before we begin a couple of things uh, today i have enabled a slow chat so the chat will happen a little slower than yesterday and i also have a moderator who is moderating the discussion so what happened yesterday was that there were so many chat messages that i missed many of the good questions i missed many of the super chats that were purchased so to those of you whose questions i missed and whose super chats i missed i apologize uh, i'm still learning so today will be a better experience and those of you who have purchased super chats that i have missed i'm going to do a special episode tomorrow tomorrow 7 pm india time 7 in the evening and i'm going to cover all the missed super chats that i have missed in the first two episodes thus far so that's what i'll do tomorrow and so today let's come to today's topic which is chingis khan and you all may be wondering why am i talking about this chingis khan or changes khan or gengis khan this person what is his relevance why should we why should we bother about him so so here's the thing let me show you his empire see Chinggis Khan is one of the greatest is not one of the greatest he is the greatest conqueror of all time and let me show you what his empire looked like so this is the empire of Chinggis Khan and his descendants this is in 1279 he died in 1227 so the so the western region the european region was conquered by his descendants by his sons and grandsons but everything else was conquered by himself Now as you can see there is one very interesting and very big piece of the map missing in his empire and that is obviously India so for some reason this guy who conquered half the world did not conquer India and that's what has always fascinated and intrigued me for a very long time so i started reading about chingis khan in the year 2000 that's 21 years ago and i have read a lot about him and i have found that he has been misportrayed very badly he has been demonized by every, almost every historian until very recently and so by doing a lot of reading and all i was able to uncover what he truly was like and there was one question that nobody has answered in the past 700 years which is why did why did chingis khan refuse to conquer india so i was able to essentially figure out what what is the reason for that and i have made a video about that which uh, went absolutely viral it has more than 1.8 million views in the past 5 months so maybe you can check it out to get some background later so that is what we're going to discuss so let me just give you a brief brief introduction about this so in the year 1221 exactly 800 years before today chingis khan was in punjab he was at the western border of india he was in the indus valley and he was pursuing a guy called jalaluddin who was the last shah of the khwarazm empire which is iran and central asia so he was pursuing jalaluddin jalaluddin tried to come into india to get refuge with the mamluk dynasty the indian uh, mamluk king was iltutmish who was a turk so chingis khan came all the way pursuing uh, jalaluddin into india and he was able to destroy jalaluddin's army entirely in the battle of the indus in the year 1221 and then he turned back even though he was at the border of india the richest country in the history of the world the country with the highest gdp of all time he could have conquered it the mamluks the islamic uh, invaders of india were no match for chingis khan absolutely no match for him 
but he decided to turn back and that is a great mystery that has been a great mystery for 800 years until i was the first person to give an answer as to why he chose to turn back so i have realized that i seem to be the only expert on chinggis khan in india so i thought let me do this session so there are a lot of misconceptions about this person this guy chinggis khan conquered more land in 30 years than all the roman emperors could conquer in 300 years that is how great a conqueror he was and yet he invaded other kingdoms and empires only in retaliation he did not ever start a war but he always finished the wars so that's the guy he, that's the kind of guy he was and as to why he refused to invade india he had a, there was a number of reasons but one of the reasons was that he had a strong affinity for indian culture he was a he was not a buddhist but he was a big fan of buddhism and buddhism is another form of hinduism which is what i have already said in the past so that's why he he had, he had a great deal of respect for buddhism and hinduism and he did not want to spill the blood spill any blood in the land that gave birth to buddhism and hinduism and that is one of the reasons one of the several reasons why he chose not to invade india so that is a b- brief amount of background and context about uh, chinggis khan so and there are a lot of misconceptions in india about this man most of us in india believe that he was a muslim right and we most of us believe that the mongols were muslims and that khan is an islamic surname and many people seem to believe that alauddin khilji defeated chinggis khan six times or seven times and people seem to believe that the islamic invader timur was a descendant of chinggis khan and that babar and the moguls were descendants of chinggis khan there is this uh, this belief that chinggis khan fathered thousands of children and 10 to 20% of humanity is descended from him and much more so let's deal with all of these questions one by one so let me take uh, start by taking a couple of questions so here we are thank you very much grip get it uh the question is your chinggis khan video is my favorite history video ever on youtube thank you so much question in your opinion expertise what is was the factor or factors that made khan and the mongols the most effective conquerors ever that is a great question it goes to the heart of the matter as to how these one man and and his descendants were able to conquer the greatest empire in history he was greater than julius caesar greater than alexander the so called great and every other conqueror so great question let's go into that so the first thing is that the mongols were nomads they live in mongolia which is a, essentially a wasteland a very barren and harsh land it's it's frozen for great for great periods of the of the year the mongolian winter is extremely harsh temperatures routinely go to minus 30 degrees and even in in springtime and summer food is very scarce and it's a, it's it's a very tough life in mongolia so the mongols have been nomads for about 2000 years they're still nomads many of them are still uh, living a nomadic lifestyle which is what they prefer so they have always been a mobile nation a nomadic nation and living in such a harsh environment requires a lot of discipline almost military discipline so the mongols were in the past divided into various ethnic not ethnic groups but uh, clans and tribes uh, 
and they were always at war with each other and they were always for centuries invaded by the chinese repeatedly so they always had to be on the alert and they were always trying to survive so they were accustomed to a great deal of hardship they were accustomed to moving all the time and they were accustomed to military discipline and that is the world that chinggis khan was born into so what this man achieved chinggis khan in the first 45 or so years of his life was he unified the entire mongolian nation he unified all the clans and tribes and he created a unified nation so that is the first achievement and he did it because of his military prowess and uh, his tactical and strategic uh, superiority and then he invaded china and he what he did while invading china was he acquired as much chinese military technology as he could so the mongols were they did not care whether the cat was black or white as long as it caught mice so they acquired as much technology as they could it did not matter where the technology came from they took it and they used it so in a very short amount of time they acquired a great deal of expertise they acquired all possible different kinds of technology armor crossbows catapults siege engines and much more they learned new tactics and strategies from the chinese uh, generals and engineers that they that they captured and what they did was that they incorporated these uh, conquered peoples into their army and they treated them very nicely so so they acquired a great deal of expertise by doing that and the other thing is that their tactics and strategies were brilliant uh, we have heard of the so called blitzkrieg strategy that the nazis nazis used in the second world war well the blitzkrieg krieg uh, strategy is essentially concentrating all your firepower all your weaponry into one spot and blasting a hole through the enemy defenses and then just pushing through and conquering the territory so that is called blitzkrieg it means lightning warfare in german well the blitz blitzkrieg strategy is actually a mongolian strategy the mongols pioneered it and they used it to devastating effect everywhere they went so that is one of the things the other thing was that the mongols had uh, they were very mobile they could cover incredible distances in very short times because of the because of the pony the mongolian pony which is a which is a specific a special breed of horse that is native to mongolia even the indian manipuri horse is closely related to the mongolian pony so this is a short horse but it's very tough it has immense stamina and it is capable of immense bursts of speed so that is one of this uh, one of the weapons one of the strengths that the mongols had and they had a dizzying array of tactics and strategies all of which was basically meant for one objective only to defeat and destroy the enemy and the other thing was that their communications were brilliant they could communicate and coordinate two different armies uh, even 200 kilometers apart in almost real time so they could envelop the enemy from different angles outflank them and coordinate attacks from very different geographical areas apparently at the same time so these are some of the reasons why chinggis khan and the mongols were so incredibly successful the world had never seen anything like them and they conquered so much territory in such a short period of time so i hope that uh, throws some kind of light on on this matter so great question and thank you for that let me take one more question okay this is from dev chaturvedi chaturvedi Thank you Dev who is the greatest emperor of all time tell us Chinggis Khan 
absolutely no question about it. Chinggis Khan is the greatest emperor of all time. Not just because he was a great conqueror, not just because he conquered so much territory, but because he was a wise and just ruler. He is portrayed as a barbarian everywhere you see. The Western historians, even the Islamic historians have portrayed him as a bloodthirsty savage, a monster, a, a barbarian. You know, that's how he has been portrayed. But a man like him, if he was a bloodthirsty barbarian, it, just being a bloodthirsty barbarian and a savage and a brutal oppressive ruler is not enough to make you conquer so much territory. You need an immense amount of intelligence and coordination and planning and logistical ability and so much more to be able to do this. And he had all of that. And the thing about him is that the territory that he conquered, he ruled it and administered it very justly. He had the same set of rules for all his subjects, Mongolians and conquered peoples alike. So he had, he had a code of laws called the Yasa law, the Yasa code of laws. Uh, it was applicable. It was applied very strictly. It was enforced very strictly and very harshly. Everybody was subject to it, even his own family members. All right. And it was a very strict code of laws and it was fair. It was harsh, but it was fair. So if you transgressed the laws, you had to deal with the punishment no matter who you were. Even if you were a member of the of the golden family, Chinggis Khan's own family. So these are some of the reasons why he was so great. He was one of the greatest emperors. He, he was definitely the greatest emperor of all time. And he had a set of principles. He had a set of morals. You know, some people lack principles. Their only principle, their only morality is, is plunder and conquest. I want to I want to rob as much. To, I want to rob as many people as possible and enrich myself. Genghis Khan was not motivated by wealth, and I can prove it to you. He conquered an enormous amount of territory. Here we go. This is most of it, and yet he did not engage in colonialism. There is an immense difference between conquest and colonialism. Genghis Khan conquered. He did not loot. He did not steal. He did not impoverish the lands he conquered. Look at Mongolia today. Is there any vast amount of wealth? Mongolia is essentially a poor country even today, which tells you that this man did not extract wealth out of the, ter out of the conquered territories. Compare that with the European colonizers. They destroyed, impoverished, and pillaged every land they conquered. Look at what they did to India. India went from being the greatest, the most prosperous economy in the world more than one third of the entire world GDP to less than two two percent of the world GDP in just two and a half centuries under the British. So they finished extracting the entirety of India's wealth in two and a half centuries. That's what the British did. They destroyed the country in all ways. The Mongols never did that. So that these are some of the reasons why Chinggis Khan was so great. He was not just a great conqueror, but he was a fair and just ruler. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you for the question. All right, let me go to the next question. What is the history behind the name of the Mughal Empire? This is by Abhijit Deshpande. Thank you, Abhijit. Good question. So the, the name, the Mughal Empire, makes it sound like these are Mongols, right? Now, when these so-called Mughals invaded India, they called themselves Turks. 
They spoke Turkic languages. Most of them spoke the Chagatai language, I believe. Uh, the so-called slave dynasty, Mamluk dynasty, Balban, Iltutmish, etc. Their mother tongue was Chagatai. So that is a Turkic language. It seems to be connected to the Mongols because Genghis Khan's son's name was Chagatai. But Chagatai, the language, was a Turkic language. All right. So these Islamic invaders of India, including the so-called Mughals, were actually Turks. And the Indians called these people Turks. And they themselves called themselves Turks. But it is the British, in their revised history of India, in the Macaulayan education system, it is the British who started calling them Mughals. And that's why we still go on using that same terminology. They were not Mughals. Uh, they were not Mongols. They did not practice Mongolian culture. They did not practice Tengrism, Buddhism, Hinduism, any of that. Right? The so-called Mughals practiced Islam. They did not speak a Mongolian language. They spoke Turkic languages. So they were Turks in all ways. So that is the very brief history about the Mughal Empire, that it originated as Turkic invaders. They were not Mongols. Now, who are these Turkic invaders? Did they have Mongolian ancestry? Some of them did. What happened was that Chinggis Khan conquered such an enormous empire that after his deaths, after his death, he, it was divided into very large pieces, and all of each of these piece, pieces was administered uh, and ruled by one of his sons. Now, though those of his sons and descendants who ruled the Islamic parts of the world eventually became Turkicized. They, they married among the Turkish people. This, they adopted Turkish customs and the language and the Islamic religion, and eventually they became Turks. So their Mongolian identity was erased very quickly in just a couple of generations or three, four generations down the line. So they may have, have had some Mongolian blood, but they were Turkic in all ways. So that is a very big misconception among Indians that the Mughals were Mongols. They were not Mongols, they were Turks. Thank you for your question. Okay, next. Okay, this is a question by Ankur Saxena. Do you think the invasion of Chinggis Khan would have been better for India? He was a great ruler and a man with principles. Well, here's the thing. Chinggis Khan was clearly a very uh, principled ruler. He administered the territories that he conquered very fairly and justly. So had he conquered India and wherever he conquered, he did not destroy the native culture. He did not try to impose his language and his religion and his lifestyle and his traditions on the conquered people. So that is one thing that is to be noted. So had he conquered India, he would have not tried to destroy India's culture and destroy India's cultural artifacts and impose a Mongolian culture on India. He would definitely not have done that one bit. The other thing to be noted is that when Chinggis Khan conquered the Khwarazm Empire, which is Iran, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, etc., Central Asia, when he conquered this Islamic heartland, one of the strange things he did was that he replaced mosques with Buddhist temples. So there's a backstory to this. Central Asia was Indianized for thousands of years. 
it it was home to indianized dynasties and indianized people who were the descendants of indian migrants to the west which these migrations happened thousands of years ago and most of these dynasties claimed descent from the vedic clans of india so india so the central asian region was for a very very long time home to indianized cultures and peoples right and you will you will find signs of this everywhere you will see ruined temples and ruined monasteries and ruined buddhist uh, structures everywhere in afghanistan in kazakhstan in turkmenistan even in the caucasus region everywhere and many and after this uh, this region became islamized many of these buddhist monasteries which may have been hindu temples in the past many of these dharmic structures were destroyed and replaced with mosques and when you replace an ancient structure with a mosque you usually what they would usually do was they would repurpose the architecture they would repurpose the bricks and uh, stones into making the mosque so when chinggis khan reached here he, i'm sure he could see that the this uh, these mosques were uh, were originally uh, buddhist monuments so what he did was in many places he brought these mosques down and put buddhist temples in their place all over again and after his descendants became islamized they, the mosques <laughs> came up again all over again so the point i'm making is that he was a he was a big fan of of buddhism and uh, by extension of hinduism so had he conquered india he would not he would 100% not have destroyed any buddhist temples or hindu temples he would actually have promoted the religion and culture that is what i believe i mean that is very apparent from the pattern of behavior that he has already exhibited and that he is he is known to have exhibited so would his inv- invasion have been better than better for india than the turkic invasions oh 100% absolutely india would have been a very different country today but that is all hypothetical history because we know what actually <laughs> what actually happened right so thank you for your question let me look at other questions okay okay this is a this is a question by chetan what is your opinion on the thank you chetan for the super chat what's your opinion on the idea of nations considering it's relatively a very fresh concept will we see civilizations back in the future the chinese are uh, it's a good question very good question the concept of nation states is very new it's very recent it's about uh, two, it's about 300 or so years old plus or minus something or the other historically as long as humankind has existed we have not had nation states we've only had kings and kingdoms and empires at time and civilizations so the chinese are trying to portray themselves as a civilization not as a nation state and that's why they they're expansionist behavior is in in a way explained off by that that we are a civilization and we will expand because civilizations have all are always a net exporter of culture and other things and they have a military sphere of influence that transcends their geographical boundaries so the chinese are already trying to portray themselves as a civilization state india has defined itself as a nation state in 1947 by which it officially ceased to be a civilization which is a really stupid thing to do in my opinion so i believe that going forward in the future we will see the resurgence of civilizations the nation state idea is a is a brief experiment 
it is a few centuries long which is a eye blink of time in the broader context of human history so it's a it's a western concept it stems from the from the treaty of westphalia in europe a few centuries ago in which europe was divided up into small kingdoms and fiefdoms into small nation states for the local rulers to exploit so it's a very exploitative idea it is not really empowering for the people despite external appearances the natural state of being for human uh, cultures and societies has been has been either kingdoms or civilizations or empires and it's it's not about the merits and demerits of the thing which is morally superior or which is morally inferior as a realist as a student of history i would say that this is a temporary experiment it may not last long in the future we may revert to civilizations so china is one which is behaving like a civilization state russia is also behaving like a civilization state china and russia are very clear about the fact that they they reject the concept of democracy they don't believe in it and they're going to do it do the things their own way so in the future others may also follow suit and revert to their traditional indigenous form of governance and administration so excellent question next question by mohit why were the moguls able to conquer most of india but not able to enter the southern part that is lower andhra pradesh and tamil nadu uh that's an excellent question and uh, i don't think may anyone has answered this question thus far i would say that the moguls were actually not that powerful the reason the Mogul, the moguls were able to conquer and uh, subdue large parts of india the reason for that was that it they they invaded india at a time when india was fragmented politically so india has seen cycles of history there have been cycles when india has been united under a single emperor as in the mauryan emperors or the gupta emperors or the uh, kushan emperors like kanishka so there were times when india was united under a single emperor and there were times where india was fragmented into numerous kingdoms sometimes it was the mahajanapadas sometimes it was the rajput uh, feudal states etc but it's always been one culture and one civilization so these islamic invaders the turks entered india conquered india uh, invaded india at a time at a phase of india's history when india was disunited and that is the primary reason why despite not being that great a military power the turkic invaders were able to quickly conquer large parts of india not very large parts but uh, at least large parts of northern and western india now in the south you had powerful kingdoms powerful empires the vijayanagar empire was incredibly powerful the tamils also had powerful uh, empires and kings and all that and these were able to resist the the turks for longer periods of time uh, the vijayanagar empire fell 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 very tragically uh, because of treachery and all that so that is something that india has always must always uh, uh be that india needs to always keep an eye on that there is always the possibility of treachery so that is the reason why the vijayanagar empire fell but in the south of india it was basically to some extent insulated because of the enormous geography of india it was insulated from these invasions and uh, therefore tamil nadu especially was able to escape the the turkic invasions and it took them a great deal of time before they were able to conquer vijayanagar and some parts of um, some other parts of southern india 
So, so there's a number of reasons for this, but uh, it's primarily because they were not as powerful as we think they are. And secondly, because India is so large, we see India as one piece in the map, but it's actually an enormous subcontinent sized piece of geography. So the distances were against the, Mugh the Mughals and the Turks. And that's why they were not able to conquer and subdue parts of southern India. So I hope that answers your question. Let me see. Okay, this is from Rohit Badane. It's not related to Chinggis Khan, but let me quickly answer this. Would you please elaborate on Northeast India and how its history evolved and what impact it had made on other kingdoms at that point in time? So the Northeast part of India is actually the Eastern part of India. We call it the Northeast because of I don't know why it's called the Northeast, but let's just call it the Northeast for now. So it's a fascinating part of India. It's a very interesting mix of cultures and ethnicities. So you have Assam, you have Manipur, you have so-called Nagaland, uh, Mizoram, Tripura, Sikkim, Arunachal Pradesh, and that entire region. So today it is... Uh, we have very well-defined boundaries, but in the past, you had kingdoms that expanded and shrunk. For example, the kingdom of, kingdom of Manipur was much larger at, at certain points in time. Manipur had conquered parts of Burma. The Manipuri king even conquered Rangoon at one point, and even some parts of the Yunnan region of, of present-day China. The Ahoms were a magnificent dynasty, a great dynasty. They also had a, a rich, diverse culture, and they have made a great deal of cultural contribution to 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 the whole of india essentially uh, the ahoms are essentially a tibeto burman people they are a local manifestation of the thai people the thai people are found throughout this region thailand the country gets its name from the thai people it, it's thailand actually and the people of the Yunnan region of China are also of Thai ethnicity. They are not Chinese. Yunnan doesn't belong in China. And similarly, the Ahoms as well. So this is an ethnic group that is present that is spread out over a very large geographical area. And they have been Indianized for, for almost 2,000 years. The Thais, the, the Yunnan people, and the Ahoms, they were all they all are Indianized to, to various degrees and in various forms. So the Ahom Empire was brilliant. It was great. It repulsed the Mughal incursions on numerous occasions. They were very brave. They had a great military history. So that is very briefly about the northeast of India. It has evolved for, I would say, several thousand years. The oldest recorded history of, the, of this region is, I believe it is the Chaitharol Kumbaba, which is the Manipuri Chronicle of Kings which goes back at least 2,000 years, probably much before that. And unfortunately, our historians are not interested in researching these matters. So I hope that changes in the future. But that is very briefly about the northeast of India. It's a fascinating, brilliant, brilliant place. And it deserves much more attention than it gets. Okay, next question. Thomas Schiff. Was India's outlook towards sex and pornography more liberal? Did uh, Abrahamic invasions influence this mindset as we consider it today? Okay, once again, it's not related to Genghis Khan, but let me quickly answer this. India, I don't know what liberal means. Uh, in, is it liberal in the modern context? <laughs> uh, 
see india has been a very open society in the past just look at the temples in khajuraho and you can see that sex was not taboo if you look at ancient indian sculptures of men and women you will see that they were dressed according to the india to india's climate india's climate to the most part is rather hot in the southern regions of india it is quite humid so you should not i mean it is not natural for the people of these climates to wear extensive amounts of clothing so you, you can see that in ancient indian uh, scarving uh, carvings and sculptures you will see men and women who are topless it was not a big deal at all that that was the that was the way of that was the way of living so and about sex and pornography i mean you can see sculptures of sexual acts and all kinds of things uh, so it was by no means taboo at all so india was a very open society if you look at indianized cultures in eastern asia you will see a much more relaxed outlook towards uh, towards uh, basically sexuality and that is essentially what india also had if you look at a country like thailand for example they have absolutely no problem with any sort of sexuality whether it is the normal straight sexuality or or homosexuality or trans people or transgenders or anything everything is accepted everything is is fine no one cares you do your your thing we'll do our thing so that's how india has always been today india is a much more closed society with respect to say, to displays of sexuality and nudity and all that and clearly this happened after the abrahamic invasions so that is the answer in short this is a donation by ss thank you so much no question thank you very much i appreciate it okay let me take some more questions Abhishek Banerjee, thank you. Can you make a video about Hitler's Third Reich and his SS battalions? That's an interesting topic. I will add it to my possible future videos list. Thank you. Let me take some questions about Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Okay, this is a question by Dhruba Anindya Ghosh. Were the Mongols ethnically proto-Hans and were the Hans the proto-Turks. Brilliant, brilliant question. You're going to the heart of the matter over here. So here's the deal. The Mongols and the Turks essentially are the same people if you go back 2,000 years, two and a half thousand years. They have the same ancestors. Their ancestors were the Huns, the Hunnic peoples. So if you see that, if you see the history of the Turks, before they became Islamized, they practiced the same culture and religion as the Mongols. They practiced Tengrism, which is a polytheistic, pantheistic religion with, with elements of nature worship, shaman worship, uh, shamanism, animism, ancestor worship, and much more. It has an entire uh, pantheon of gods and goddesses, which is strikingly similar to Vedic Hinduism. So this is the belief system that the Mongols practiced and the Turks also practiced this before they became Islamized. The Turks were Buddhists at some points in time and, uh, and that's the history that they had. So the Mog Mongols are the descendants of the Huns, not the Hans, the Huns. And the Turks are also the, des the descendants of the Huns. And the Huns went all the way into Europe. Attila, who sacked Rome, was a Hun. He's called Attila the Hun. And the the Magyars, the people of Hungary, well, they are also the product of an ancient Hunnic invasion of, of Europe. Uh, 
So there's a very interesting history. The Huns are a very fascinating people. And they spawned these two separate ethnicities, the Turks and the Mongols. But the Turks and the Mongols have a great deal of similarity. For example, when, when Mustafa Kemal Ataturk embarked upon his Turkicization process, when he, his Turkification process, after winning the Turkish War of Independence in the 1920s, what he the first thing he did was to sanitize the Turkish language and remove all Arabic and Persian words from the Turkic language, from the Turkish language. And he replaced these Persian and Arabic words with Mongolian equivalent words, with Mongolian synonyms. So he recognized the fact that Mongolian language and culture is very close and similar to Turkish culture and that the Turks are essentially the descendants of the proto-Hans, the proto-Mongols, proto-Huns and proto-Mongols. And we don't realize this, but there has been a wave of Hunnic invasions into India. They were called the Shweta Hunas in Sanskrit, in English the Heptalites. This happened more than 1500 years ago. They, many of these waves of invasion by the Huns were repulsed. Eventually, the Huns did break through. They did conquer parts of India, northern India. They did conquer parts of uh, Afghanistan, which was very much part of India at that time. And they assimilated harmoniously into Indian society. Some of them practiced Hinduism. Some of them practiced Buddhism. And they defended India and India's national interest. It's very interesting. And they promoted India's culture. For example, the great mathematician astronomer Brahma Gupta, his patron was a king of the Chapa, of the Sri Chapa dynasty, whose name was Vyagramukha. And Vyagramukha was a first generation or second generation in, uh, immigrant into India. His father or grandfather was a Hunnic invader. So this guy, the descendant, the son or grandson of invaders, was the patron of one, one of India's greatest scientists. And he was also a patron of the arts and culture. So the first wave of Hunnic invasions into India, you could call them the first wave of, uh, first wave of Turkic invasions, was a very different wave <laughs> in many ways than the second wave, which is the so-called Mughals. So the original Turkic invaders of India, the original Hunnic invaders of India were very much assimilated into Indian society and, and their descendants probably live among us today. So to go back to your questions, the Mongols are the descendants of the Huns and so are the Turks. Okay, some more questions. Okay, this is by Dungar Singh Chauhan. Thank you for this question. There is a long-running fact or story that Chinggis Khan slept with so many women that in today's world, every one in 200 people are related to him. Please give your opinion. Very good question. I'm glad you bring this up. So this is a very popular belief that at least 10% of humanity minimum is descended from Chinggis Khan because he slept with or rather raped thousands of women and fathered thousands and fathered thousands of children this is a very popular belief today all across the world and the origin of this belief is a national geographic article from i think 2003 or thereabouts and the title of the article was something like chinggis khan was a prolific lover and that he fathered thousands of children 
So the basis of this article is a support is, is a genetic study that found that there is a certain Mongolian lineage, a patrilineal genetic lineage, which traces back to Mongolia, that is found in large parts of Central Asia and in some parts of Europe. So they have made the leap of imagination of connecting that lineage with Chinggis Khan. Now, if you want to connect two individuals genetically, you need DNA samples of both, both individuals, right? So let's say that uh, I, we find a person who has this Mongolian genetic lineage who is alive today. You take their blood or, or, or a piece of hair or something. You do a DNA test. You sample their genome. And then you would need to connect that person to Chinggis Khan genetically. So you would need a sample of Chinggis Khan's DNA, a strand of hair, a piece of bone or something. But we don't have that. We do not have a single sample of Chinggis Khan's DNA because his tomb has never been found. Right? So then how do you make the conclusion that this genetic lineage is, is uh, fathered by Chinggis Khan when you don't have a sample of his DNA and you don't even have a sample of DNA from any of his descendants, any of his sons or grandsons? So how does one make this incredible leap of, 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 uh, of belief? So this article is completely erroneous. It is scientifically wrong. And th this essentially is another example of the way Chinggis Khan has been demonized relentlessly throughout history. There is absolutely no evidence that he raped women or slept with hundreds of women. And, and the other uh, popular uh, belief is that the Mongols used rape as a weapon of war which means that they were, systemic, they were systematic rapists. Once again, there is not one shred of real, of real hard evidence that corroborates this fact. Now, the, most of the histories of the Mongols have been written by their enemies. They, these histories have been written by the people they conquered. And therefore, they have been obviously demonized in these histories. But there is no real evidence, no hard scientific evidence that corroborates any of these claims. For example, some English historian actually portrayed the Mongols as cannibals as, as they, he portrayed them as eating the flesh of their of the people they conquer which is obviously a complete lie so this is the way the Mongols have been relentlessly demonized now the fact is this the Mongols had a code of laws called the Yasa code it was instituted by Chinggis Khan himself and this code of laws wa was very very strictly and harshly enforced and this, this code of laws prescribed the death penalty for anyone who, who either abducted or sexually molested a woman. And this applied to any person inside his enormous empire. So every woman in his empire was protected by this law, whether she was Mongol or from a conquered people. Every woman in this empire was protected by Chinggis Khan's law. Now tell me, this is a man who is the ruler, who is the leader of an enormous nation. Now, would he have been able to garner the respect of his soldiers and his people had he been flouting his own laws? Can a leader claim to be a leader if he is breaking the laws that he is imposing on, on his own, on his subjects? It just doesn't work that way. Genghis Khan was universally respected by his people and even by his enemies. So this story, this incredibly poor myth 
that he was a mass rapist and that the the Mongols were rapists. It is a lie. It is an absolute lie. There is no, it has no basis in fact. Okay, next question by Dr. Heinz Dufenschmerz. Thank you, Dr. Heinz. Did any Indian ruler ever rule Tibet, specifically Mount Kailash? How is Japanese Shinto and Chinese Taoism related to our culture? So did Indian rulers rule Tibet? So we had Indianized kingdoms north of the Himalayas. The present-day so-called Xinjiang region of China has uh, was, was Indianized for many, many millennia, most likely. And the Gandhari language was the lingua franca throughout Central Asia and north of the Himalayas in the so-called Xinjiang region today. The city of Kashgar was known as Kashinagar in the past. And many of these city-states north of the Himalayas were founded by Indians. For example, one of these cities was founded by Indians during the Mauryan times. So there were many rulers in this part of the world. The Tibetan uh, people, they became uh, a separate distinct culture and nation approximately 2000 years ago or thereabouts, give or take a couple of centuries. So before that, definitely there were Indians who ruled that entire region. And the Himalayas were never actually patrolled and ruled. It was just a mountainous region. Of course, Mount Kailash is the most sacred mountain for, for Indians and other people as well. It is the holiest mountain in Hinduism, in Buddhism and in the Tibetan born religion. So, yes, this region has been under the jurisdiction of Indian kings who ruled north of the Himalayas more on, on, on several occasions. Most of the time, nobody has laid claim to this region. It's always been ungoverned because nobody could, could live in that environment. But it has always been under the Indian sphere of influence. Tibet is essentially uh, an Indianized culture. So, so that's uh, that's the thing. That's that's the answer. If Tibet was still independent today, I imagine that the relationship between India and Tibet would have been like the current relationship between India and Nepal: open borders and no passports and, and no visas. That's the relationship we would have had with them, had we saved them from the Chinese invasion. So that's part one of your question. Part two is how is Japanese Shinto and ta Chinese Taoism related to our culture? So let's take Shinto. So for many, many centuries, so, so Buddhism and Hinduism entered Japan approximately 1500 years ago. Now, the Jap Japanese consider themselves to be Buddhists, those who practice Buddhism. But if you look beneath the surface, there are lots of elements of Hinduism in Japanese Buddhism. Most of the gods and goddesses of, Hindu of Hinduism are worshipped in Japan under Japanese name. For example, one of their goddesses is the great goddess Benzaitin, who is Saraswati. It is the Japanese name for Saraswati. They worship Ganesh as well. Ganesh has a Japanese name. Kuber has a Japanese name. Lord Shiva has a Japanese name. So essentially, every Indian god and goddess, every Hindu god and goddess is worshipped as part of Japanese Buddhism. So that again corroborates my claim that Buddhism is just another form of Hinduism. So Japanese, so the indigenous religion of Japan is Shinto. It is the belief system of Japan. It is once again a very, uh, it's a polytheistic belief system. The local gods are called Kami. So, so there are elements of nature worship and spirit worship and ancestor worship and animism in Shinto. 
so uh, when buddhism entered japan like any polytheistic belief system it it harmoniously syncretized itself with the indigenous japanese religion so for centuries you had the same temple for shinto practices as well as buddhist practices now in the 19th century there was this so called meiji uh, meiji reformation the meiji emperor tried to reform japan and he tried to portray buddhism as a foreign religion he tried to stamp out buddhism by force and he failed but what he succeeded in doing was he he succeeded in creating a perception that buddhism is a foreign import into japan so now you have separate temples for shinto practices and for buddhist practices but overall it's a very syncretic culture so that is how shinto is Shin, the japanese shinto religion is closely integrated and syncretized with indian culture and buddhism and hinduism and the same goes for chinese taoism taoism is a chinese indigenous practice but china is today the world's largest dharmic country it has the largest number of buddhists practicing buddhists in the world despite it being officially a marxist communist atheist country china has more than 200 million practicing buddhists even today so buddhism once again it integrated itself in chinese society it uh, syncretized itself with the taoist beliefs and practices so a person who practices buddhism in in china today would also integrate uh, elements of taoism in their day to day life and in their traditions so all polytheistic traditions are extremely accepting of other cultures especially similar polytheistic cultures and they integrate and syncretize very readily and you see this in japan as well as in china so great question okay one more question this is from shubham kumavat thank you shubham thank you very much the question is considering the boundaries of the mongol empire how they accommodated themselves so fast to deserts rainforests in contrast to clo- to harsh cold grasslands environment has no effect on conquest for mongols well that's the thing about the mongols they adapted very very quickly uh, they were accustomed to a very harsh cold climate they were accustomed to the deserts as well there is this great gobi desert between mongolia and china and parts of mongolia are very arid very dry even though they are very cold so it's like a desert so they were accustomed to a great deal of hardship so going into a hotter environment was not a big deal for them it was just another form of hardship and they had this tight intense military discipline at all times so it was not difficult for them to to adapt to different climates so for example the, when they went to central asia it was a different climate when they went to iran it was a different climate the south of china had a very different climate especially yunnan and all that and they tried invading uh, japan which they failed they tried invading so the invasion was of, of japan was under kublai khan the first official emperor of the chinese yuan dynasty kublai khan was the grandson of chinggis khan so so they were very adaptable they they were accustomed to great deal of hardships which is why they adapted so fast and like i said earlier they were always ready to accept new technologies so one of the criticisms i find on my chinggis khan video by certain people is that the real reason they did not invade india was because it was too hot and because uh, the 
more humid climate of India was deleterious to their to the to the weapons that they, that they had. The essentially, especially the bow that they used. The thing is that the Turks, who also came from a cold climate, were able to invade India without any without any problem, and they were able to adapt to the hotter and more humid environment of India. So why would the Mongols not be able to do that? The Mongols were a far superior fighting force than the Turks ever were. So this argument absolutely holds no, no merit at all. The Mongols were able and they were capable of invading and conquering any kind of country, any kind of terrain, any kind of climate, environment, like you said, actually really did not have any effect on the conquest for Mongols. Chinggis Khan's grandsons were able to conquer the hot, arid deserts of the Islamic world. They went all the way to Egypt. So they were an incredible fighting force and the environment didn't really did not have any effect on their, on their conquests. So thank you for the question. Okay, this is from Shiro Tamashi. Thank you, sir. Are the Mongols descendants of Huns and how different are they from modern Turkic people? Yes, the Mongols are the descendants of the ancient Hunnic peoples. And the Turks are also descendants of the ancient Hunnic peoples. So ethnically, there is some relationship between the Turks and the Mongols. Before, like I said, before the Turks became Muslims, they practiced the same cultures that the Mongols practice today. So there were elements of Tengrism and elements of Buddhism. And the, the Huns who invaded India also integrated into Indian society and practiced Hinduism and Buddhism as and when it spread in India. So in today's world, the Turks are very different from the Mongols. First of all, if you look at the Turkish people, they look like Europeans. They do not look like the Mongols at all, even though their own ancestors were Central Asians, right? So what happened was that when the ancestors of today's Turks conquered what is now Turkey, but what was then known as Anatolia, what they did was they had this practice called bride kidnapping. So it is a practice in which a young man, if he wants to marry, has to prove his bravery by sneaking into the camp of a rival tribe or confederation, abducting a young girl and successfully bringing her back to his own tribe. So that was a test of strength. That was a test of whether you are... Uh, you 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 have reached your manhood and whether you have the right to get married or not. So this is an ancient Turkic practice. It was also practiced throughout the Islamic world because the Turks became Muslims and they conquered most of the Islamic world. So when they conquered Anatolia, which is now Turkey, most of it, Anatolia was essentially a Greek land. It has been populated by Greeks for around 3,000 years. So what they did was they practiced their custom of bride kidnapping on the local women. And slowly over the years, these Turks started to look like Europeans. And today they look entirely like Europeans. They don't look like the original Turks at all. So today's Turks are ethnically Europeans. They are ethnically Greeks and Armenians. Right? And they practice the some elements of the old Turkic uh, culture, especially the Turkey, Turkish language, and they practice Islam. So their culture is very different from the culture of the Mongolian people today. 
their ethnicity is totally different. They are now ethnically European. And their language has some relationship with the modern Mongolian language. So that, I hope, answers your question. Thank you. Let me see if there are more questions. Stanzing Angchuk, sir, anything about Ladakh history? So Ladakh is a very interesting piece of uh, territory. Beautiful. It is uh, quite uh, desolate and barren. It can get really hot in the summer. It gets really, really cold in the winter. The people of uh, Ladakh are ethnically, I would say, Tibetan. Right? So that is the reason why the Chinese are trying to claim Ladakh. That's why they have captured Aksai Chin. And there is the, there is the logical, so supposedly logical thought process behind the, 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 their claims towards Indian territory. So the people of Ladakh are an extension of the Tibetan people. They are ethnically and culturally Tibetans. Uh, they practice Buddhism. And it, it's uh, Ladakh has uh, always been, at least for the past 1000 or 1500 years, a Buddhist land. It's had a great deal of influence from Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, mostly Vajrayana and Tantric Buddhism. So that's briefly about Ladakh history. It's a beautiful territory, great people, very nice, friendly, beautiful people. I will go into that in more detail in a future episode, but thank you for the question. Okay, some more questions about the Mongols. One second. Okay, another super chat question. Uh, thank you. Did ancient India have any contact with the Mayan civilization or American continent, Red Indians? Excellent question. We do not have any evidence today. But there is a lot of circumstantial evidence which has thus far not been proven by science, by hard science, because nobody has bothered to look into it. So the science of genetics may provide clues and archaeology may provide clues. There does seem to be some sort of relationship culturally and even to some extent genetically between India and the ancient indigenous peoples of the two American continents. We know very well that Indians in ancient times undertook very, very large, very uh, long naval voyages. For example, we know for a fact that the aboriginal indigenous people of Australia have about 10 to 12% Indian ancestry. And this Indian ancestry entered Australia about four and a half thousand years ago, which means that Indians went by sea, crossed the Indian Ocean and went all the way to northern Australia. Right? This happened four and a half thousand years ago when the Harappan era of Indian civilization was in full force. So Indians had the capability to undertake very long sea voyages. So it is not inconceivable that they may have even gone further and gone all the way to South America or North America by sea. It is possible. And you do see interesting parallels between Indian culture and the culture of the indigenous Americans. And there is this uh, Indian historian called Bhikshu Chamanlal who wrote a book about this about a century or so ago. And that book was where I, I believe it was banned by some by 
by the United States. I think it was banned. I'm not sure. I'll have to check it. But yes, this has been remarked upon. So we do not have, as of today, hard, undisputable evidence of any contact between India, ancient India, and the ancient Mayas or the other peoples of America. But there is circumstantial evidence. Historians, especially in the West, are have been trying to deny Indian history for a very long time. So I think in the future things may change. But as of today, we don't have hard evidence. But it's a very interesting topic. Thank you for the question. Okay, this is by Shiro Tamashi. Thank you, sir. Is it true that the White Huns waged war and were defeated by Skandagupta Vikramaditya? Yes, the White Huns, the Heptalites, the Shweta Hunas did try to invade India on several occasions. There were many waves of invasions and they were defeated by Emperor Skandagupta. Skandagupta took a vow that he would not eat food in a dish and he would not sleep in a bed until he defeated the Huns. So he, he decided that he would, he would eat food in a leaf and he would sleep on the floor until he had saved India from the Huns. And he succeeded. He kicked them out of India. After Emperor Skandagupta died, there were further waves of invasions from the Shweta Hunas and they did succeed to some extent in conquering certain territories in northern India and they integrated, assimilated in India's population harmoniously. They adopted Hinduism, Buddhism and the local practices and they eventually turned out to be very good kings and they became Indians. So they did not impose a foreign culture or foreign values or foreign religion on India. They became Indians. So I appreciate what they did. So yes, the White Huns did wage war in India and eventually they became Indians. Very interesting part of history. And like I've said before, they are very much related to today's Mongols. So that's an interesting connection. Thank you for this question. Okay, this is a question by Arjun P. Thank you very much. Ogedai was the third son. So why was he the chief? Good question. So what happened was that Chinggis Khan had three or four sons. Uh, the first one was Jochi, whose paternity was under question. The second one was, I believe, Chagatai. The third was Ogedai. And if I am not mistaken, he may have had more sons with other wives. He had, he had multiple wives. But uh, these are the sons of the first wife, whose name was Borte. So Ogedai was the third son, but he was selected by Chinggis Khan to be the next Khan of the Mongols after Chinggis Khan's death. So Chinggis Khan decided this and announced this in public long before he died, that Ogedai would succeed him as the great Khan of the Mongols. So there was no law in Mongolia that, that, uh, that prescribed that the oldest son should be the, should be the next uh, ruler. It was all up to the current ruler. He could decide whoever he wanted. He could even decide somebody not related to him to be the next Khan. So essentially when a Khan died in Mongolia, there was something called a Kurultai, which was an assembly of the, of the lower chiefs, of the lower smaller Khans. And they would essentially get together and elect the next Khan. So it was a quasi-democratic process. But usually the person who was nominated by the previous Khan to be the next Khan. Usually it was that person who was elected by, by the Kurultai. 
So Chinggis Khan decided that Ogedai was the most suitable to be the great Khan of the Mongols, not his other two sons, because I believe he saw more ability in Ogedai than the other two or the other three sons. So it was all about merit and capability, not about seniority or rank. So it was a very democratic kind of society. It was a, it was very much a meritocracy, and that is one of the secrets of the success of the Mongols. It is that's why this empire succeeded to the extent that it did because it promoted merit and not nepotism. I mean, definitely it was the son of the Khan who became the next Khan, but it was the best son, not the oldest son. So that's how it went. Good question. Thank you. Okay. I think uh, Himanku Padia, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, this is a question by Grip. Get it? Thank you so much. Can you criticize anything about Chinggis Khan? Well, that's a good question. Maybe he could have killed fewer people. We do not know exactly how many people he killed during his conquests. The number that is usually thrown around is 40 million, which is a fantastically large number. But even if we believe that it was 40 million people that he killed during his conquests, and if we divide that number by the by the area in square kilometers of the territory he conquered, then the number of deaths per square kilometer is not greater than the number of deaths that Timur caused or people like Napoleon caused or people like Mao caused. In fact, it is much less than the, than the number of deaths per kilometer caused during the, uh, during the Bangladesh genocide of 1971, for example. So if you look at it from a realistic perspective, the number of deaths he caused per square kilometer of conquest, even if we take the ridiculous figure of 40 million, it is still not that excessive. When you conquer, when somebody conquers a territory, there's going to be fighting, there's going to be warfare. So, so a number of deaths is unfortunately a byproduct of conquest. There's no two ways around it. But what would I criticize about Chinggis Khan? I really, that's a fascinating question and I haven't thought about it. So as of now, I don't think I have any criticisms of this guy. Maybe he could have conquered more or maybe he should have conquered India and freed India from the tyranny of the Turks. Yes, I would say that is my criticism of Chinggis Khan. He should have conquered India and freed us from this tyranny. That's the one thing he missed doing in his life. And that's why we have this map instead of what it should have been. All right. Thank you for that question. Let me find some more questions. Dr. Heinz, once again, thank you, sir. <laughs> what about starting our civilization on other planets? Well, which civilization is that? Is it Indian civilization? Is it Chinese civilization? Is it the Western capitalism? That is the question. Whichever country succeeds in colonizing other planets is going to export their culture and civilization over there. So currently the world is under the sway of Western capitalism, which believes in 
never-ending expansion. It believes in never-ending quarter upon quarter profits and, and continuous, unending, infinite expansion on a finite planet. And it is this worldview that has led to the climate change problem that we are facing today. It has led to the incredible pollution we see in the oceans and the mountains of garbage that is exported from the West into the third world nations because they want to keep their countries clean. So this, this worldview and this way of life is not sustainable. Today they are trying to blame India and China for pollution. This problem that the world is facing is entirely created by the Western world, starting from the so-called industrial revolution, when they started dumping enormous amounts of, of pollution into the atmosphere. The global warming, the atmospheric pollution, the deforestation that we see today, the mountains of plastic trash in our oceans, it has all been done by the West. This culture of disposability, throw everything, use it once and throw away. So if this is the culture we're going to export to other planets, then we as a, as a species are doomed. Because if we trash the Earth and move to Mars, we're going to trash Mars in no time. And then where do we go? So you know what? We need to first figure out what we want to be like. Which value system are we going to embrace as a whole? We should do that before we move on to other planets. So that's my answer. Thank you for the question. This is by Rajat Mathur. Thank you, Rajat. The role of horses in conquest. It was the role of horses in Chinggis Khan's conquests was a central role. None of it would have happened without the incredible Mongolian pony. So the Mongolian pony is a small animal. It is not as large as the Arabian horse. It is a smaller horse, but it is extremely hardy. It has immense endurance. And it is perfect for the kind of warfare, the kind of blitzkrieg warfare the Mongols waged. So the Mongols would never have been able to conquer the empire that they created without the horse, not even one hundredth of it. So the role of horses in the conquest was a central role. It is the key ingredient to the success the Mongols enjoyed. Good question. Thank you. Okay. This is an interesting question. It's by Gaurav Gore. Why was Chinggis Khan's tomb never found? Why does it remain a mystery? So this is one of the biggest mysteries of all time, isn't it? Why has his tomb never been found? Where is Chinggis Khan's tomb? And, and people from the West have been seeking his tomb since the time of Kublai Khan, his grandson. So Marco Polo, the Italian merchant and traveler, went to China during Marco Polo's time. He spent a few years in Marco Polo's court and he heard of the story that Chinggis Khan's tomb was, he heard a very fantastic story about, about his funeral. It said that everybody who saw the funeral procession was killed and an enormous uh, hole was dug. His body was, uh, was buried there and the ground was stamped over by horses and a river was diverted over the area so that nobody could ever find it. And then all the soldiers and people who participated in the funeral procession, they were also killed. So no one knows today, even at the time of Marco Polo, where this tomb was. And the belief in 
among Western historians and West and in the West is that Genghis Khan to, Khan's tomb must have must have an enormous amount of treasure. So whoever discovers this tomb will become the richest person in the world. And that's why there has been this mad rush for centuries to discover the location of Genghis Khan's tomb. Even now, people are trying to go to Mongolia and discover this tomb. There have been a couple of National Geographic documentaries as well about the location of this tomb. It has never been found. And I'm going to tell you something. His tomb is never going to be found. It remains a mystery because it is. It is. It was decided to keep it a mystery. So Genghis Khan was not a, not a stupid person. He knew what happens to the tombs of conquerors. Those tombs are eventually discovered and desecrated. Take the Mughal Emperor Akbar, the Turkic Emperor Akbar. After he died, a century or so after he died, Delhi was conquered by the Sikhs. His tomb was ransacked and his bones were fed to the dogs of Delhi. That's what happened to Akbar. If you look at the tomb of uh, Timur, it was opened by Soviet archaeologists. His body, his skeleton was taken out. It was disarticulated. It was subjected to all kinds of medical and other tests. His skull was used as a model for reconstructing his face. So it is essentially a desecration of his tomb. And this has happened to emperors in Egypt and all kinds of other people. So Chinggis Khan knew what happens when the tomb of a conqueror is discovered, especially when it contains treasure. There are tomb robbers everywhere. Now the Mongols had a practice called sky burial. It was a practice that was also present and prevalent in Tibet. So when somebody dies, their body is exposed on a hilltop to the elements. It is devoured by vultures and crows and other birds. And it goes back to the nature and its spirit is carried away to wherever it is supposed to go. It's called a sky burial. It is a legitimate funerary practice in Mongolia. And Chinggis Khan died in China. He died during the reconquest of the Shishia dynasty in northern China. Now, his ancestral homeland is the Khenti Khan Mountains uh, in northern Mongolia, which is approximately 1500 kilometers away. Now, to transport his body all the way back to Mongolia would take several months. And his body would decompose and rot in the, in the, in the meanwhile. And I don't think the Mongols would want to subject their body, the, the, the body of their great Khan, to, to such humiliation. So what I believe is that after Chinggis Khan died, his body was subjected to a sky funeral, a sky burial. And that is what happened. I don't think his tomb is present anywhere in Mongolia. I don't think he was entombed anywhere. I think his body was given up as a sky sky funeral, which is a very dignified thing. And because it happened so far away, because his death happened so far away from his, from the place where he was born, I think that is the most logical explanation of how his funeral took place. And like I have explained before, he was not interested in wealth. He was never motivated by a desire to get wealthy. And therefore, this belief that his tomb would contain un unimaginable amounts of wealth, it is a ridiculous assumption. So my belief, my, my strong conviction is that he was, his funeral was a sky funeral and his tomb doesn't even exist. And that's why 
his tomb has never been found and that's why it will remain a mystery to those who believe that he was buried somewhere right that's a good question one more question by Lina Mehta Genghis Khan versus Alexander who conquered more Genghis Khan absolutely he conquered more territory than anybody else in human in in, in recorded history he conquered more territory in 30 years than all of the Roman empires combined were able to conquer in more than three centuries. Just imagine that. And Alexander's uh, conquests don't even come close to what Genghis Khan achieved. So there is no comparison. Genghis Khan was far greater as a conqueror than Alexander. All right. Uh, okay, I'm going to take one more question for today and that will be the last question let me see <laughs> okay himank upadhyay any scientific or philosophy advancement by khan by chinggis khan no the mongolians were not scientists the mongolians were not philosophers they believed in absorbing science technology philosophy, culture from others. And there is nothing wrong about that. So their own culture was Tengrism, like I have explained. It was a polytheistic belief system. And they syncretized it with Tibetan Buddhism. So what happened was that during the rule of Chinggis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, what happened was that Kublai Khan made Tibetan Buddhism the de facto state religion of the Mongol Empire across China and across everywhere, everywhere else. So essentially the, the relationship between Tibet and Mongolia was that of a teacher and a student. Tibet was the guru, Mongolia was the shishya. It was a guru-shishya relationship. It was not the relationship between a master and a subject. Mongolia did not ever conquer Tibet. Tibet was a protectorate of Mongolia. Mongolia offered protection and in exchange, Tibet offered it its spiritual guidance as a teacher. So Mongolia absorbed Tibetan Buddhism, which is a mix of Vajrayana, Vajrayana and Tantra to the most part. So Mongolia is strongly, strongly influenced by Indian culture via Tibet. So that's what happened. So no scientific or philosophy advancement by the Mongols. They were influenced by mainly India culturally and they absorbed technology and science from everywhere they could. And that's why they succeeded. Okay, I'm going to take one more question. One last question. This is by Jay Dikshit. What is your opinion about the dark past? Many people say that Chinggis Khan had a very dark past which made him rude. He had killed a large number of people for power. Any evidence? So when you conquer the greatest empire you have in the history of humanity, the greatest empire known to us, it's going to cause a number of deaths. Now when the Pakistanis tried to retain Bangladesh, they killed about 2 or 3 million Bang Bangladeshis in about 7 months. Now the number that is attributed to Chinggis Khan is 40 million by some historians. There is no real evidence for it, but this is, this is what they claim, right? So even if you see, if you, even if you assume that this 40 million figure is, is, is correct, you have to take into account the enormous territory he conquered. 
when you conquered a kingdom when you conquered a piece of land you have to fight for it there is warfare and in warfare people die whether you like it or not so he conquered an enormous amount of territory there is going to be a number of deaths associated with it and he always conquered or invaded other kingdoms in retaliation he did not ever start a war but whenever war was forced upon it upon him he retaliated and he finished it by defeating the by defeating the offending party so he did not enjoy killing there is no evidence that he was a cruel person in any way whatsoever he was a very just ruler he was a very principled ruler but he did conquer enormous lands and therefore there were a number of deaths we do not really know how many people died during his conquests but i am sure lots of people did die as a as a byproduct of his conquests so that's about it for chingis khan <clears throat> okay one bonus question by akshat chobe what is my way to study history do i make notes of all that i study my way of studying history has been to read as much as i can so i read books i read lots of books i i have read more books than i have bought and i have more and i have bought more books than i can possibly read so i have been doing this since i was about 7 or 8 years old i was always very curious and it is because of curiosity that i am able to retain the kind of knowledge that i have now i don't read books in their entirety if i find a book about a specific topic i read the relevant portion if it is interesting i may read, read the whole book but typically i read some portions of books not the entire book and i read some books several times i read some books only once and apart from books i have read thousands possibly of of research papers and articles i even read magazine articles i even read blog posts i even read books that i know are incorrect like books about the aryan invasion theory because i want to know the perspective of the of the other side so i have been reading for a very very long time i enjoy reading i am a very curious person and that is how i study history uh in today's age you may, you may not need to read so much you can uh, you can absorb information via podcasts via programs such as what i am doing today via documentaries etc so there are many other ways of of absorbing knowledge today but the main thing is you have to remain curious and you have to have an open mind you should be open to new ideas and new perspectives if you do that then you will be able to enjoy learning history and the reason we hate learning history in school is because we are forced to memorize dates that is a stupid thing you don't need to memorize dates to understand history you just need to know roughly when something happened so when did the turks conquer uh istanbul constantinople it was somewhere in the 15th century maybe in the 1450s or thereabouts i don't remember the exact date i don't have to all i have to understand is the cause and effect chain of history and i need to know roughly when something happened so memorizing dates is is not the way to to learn history if you do that all the joy is sucked out of of learning history so that's how i do it maybe that's something that you could uh take some ideas from okay this is the absolute last question it's by divya jain thank you divya is it is there any chance all people might have been part of only one lineage of human beings occupying any particular part of the world and then they migrated and the history eventually disintegrated along with time so this is the 
this is the main core premise of the out of Africa theory that humanity originates in Africa. At least our ancestral lineages all uh, originate in Africa. So today's human beings are homo sapiens. It is one species out of many. There have been many species and subspecies of humans in the past. We are the only surviving species, homo sapiens. We have had homo neanderthalis. We had have the Denisovan humanids. We've had the homo florensis and many others. So all of these went extinct at different times. Homo sapiens, us, is the only surviving lineage of humans. And from all the evidence that we have as of today, we originate in Africa. And it was one group of humans who came out of Africa, migrated to India, and from India went in all directions in the world. So yes, your conjecture is in fact the currently accepted uh, version of history that science uh, is able to give us. So good question. All right. This... <laughs> This has to be the last question. Where do I see India in 50 years of time, technologically and culturally? Thank you, sir. I don't know. I hope to see India regain its civilizational status. And to do that, we have to embrace science, science and technology. We have to embrace science as a nation again. We have always been a very scientific people. We have been at the forefront of science and technology and astronomy and mathematics. The, the entire science, see all of the science that we have today is founded on a, bed, on a bedrock of Indian science, which was exported out of India about a thousand years ago. It spread to the Arabic world, to the Islamic world, and from there into Europe. And all that was used as the, as the foundation of what we have taken forward as modern science today. So India needs to go back to its roots. It needs to embrace science and technology and India needs to rediscover its own indigenous culture which I believe is superior to the western capitalistic uh, materialistic and extremely destructive culture that we have today so I hope to see India at the forefront of the world in 50 years time I hope to see India take the lead in exploring space because the two or three countries which will be at the forefront of space exploration in the 21st century are going to be the two or three nations that lead the world. So that's where I hope to see India in 50 years time. I hope that comes true. Thank you very much, everybody, for participating. This was great fun. And I'm going to end this now. And I will see you again very soon. I'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you, everybody, for all your questions, for, for, the, for all the comments. Apologies to those uh, questions I could not take. Keep asking me questions. Over time, I will take everyone's questions. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a good night. And I will see you tomorrow. Bye.